I didn't end greyhound racing. I haven't ended the use of pigs in food systems. And you have to accept pragmatism and I guess what some vegans would call a welfareist perspective working in politics. And I will never, ever lose my values and the fact that I think animals should not be used in the ways that they do. But I very much take the perspective of if I can improve their lives as long as these industries exist while still fundamentally working to dismantle them altogether, I will do it. But I know that a lot of people are frustrated by the idea of doing that. Hi, and welcome back to the Plant-Based News Podcast, where we deliver pioneering vegan news and ethical views from thought leaders from across the world. I'm your host, Robbie Lockie, and today I'm joined by an incredible young woman, Georgie Purcell. Georgie is an Australian politician and a member of the Animal Justice Party. She was elected as a member of the Legislative Council for Northern Victoria in November 2022 making her the second AGP MP in Victoria and the third in Australia. She's also a lawyer, a unionist, and an advocate for women's rights and reproductive health. Georgie is a vegan herself and has been vocal about the benefits of a plant-based diet for animals, people, and planet. She has also challenged some of the myths and misconceptions that surround veganism in the mainstream media and society. As always, if you like this episode, please don't forget to comment, like, and share. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It really helps get the message out there. Let's get to the episode. Thanks so much for joining us on the PBN podcast, Georgie. What a pleasure to sit down with you and uh, hear a bit of your story. Hi, everyone. And thank you so much for having me on. It's exciting to be here. To my colleagues in this chamber, I hope over the next four years, we can all find it within ourselves to just be a bit more kind to animals, to people, to the planet to each other and to the animals of Victoria. Despite your suffering in the shadows, I see you. Despite speaking a different language, I hear you. As long as I have the honour and the privilege of being a member in this place, I will fight for you. And while your situation is so dire, with all of our supporters behind me, I am filled with hope for the future. Thank you. So before we get started, um, as the tradition goes, I always like to go back in time and hear our guests' vegan or plant-based story. How did you discover this lifestyle and uh, where did this all begin for you? Yeah, I actually had to think about this a lot recently when I got elected to parliament and I had to deliver what's known as my inaugural speech. So my first ever speech to all of my colleagues and my friends and family came along to watch. And it's sort of where you tell your life story that led you to your values and the reason why you want to go into politics. And and obviously mine is animal protection. And I really pinpoint my uh, vegan story, even though it's actually my vegetarian story, but it was my connection to animals, was I grew up in a very small country town. Only about 400 or 500 people lived there at the time. And the biggest employer in the town was agriculture. So there was a lot of farms, a lot of farm workers, and uh, the town also has a highway run through it. So a lot of trucks going to and from abattoirs and slaughterhouses. And I was learning to ride my bike. I was about four and I just watched Babe. So I really had pigs in my mind. I loved pigs. And this truck full of pigs went past. And anyone who's seen a pig truck knows the noises are very distressing. They have those very human-like eyes. And I said to my parents, where are they going? And they were honest with me. And that was the first time I realised what meat was. I hadn't made the connection yet that it comes from animals. And I just said to my parents, I don't want to do that anymore. I just, I think kids understand, kids get it. We haven't been hardened by the world yet and taught, you know, all these lies about ethical meat and, you know, humane farms and humane slaughter. So I just said, I don't want to do that anymore. And I kept those values to me uh, until I went off to university and I, I met a vegan for the first time and uh, she said to me have you watched earthlings because she knew I was vegetarian I feel like that's a very cliche story but then I watched earthlings and and I went vegan after that and haven't looked back 
Mm, it's amazing. It's the same, same story as mine. I also, up to the Earthlings bit at least anyway, that film absolutely shook me and uh, rocked my world and kind of really set me on the course to what, where I am today, uh, inspired me to do the work I am today. So documentary, and I talk about it a lot in the podcast, documentary and filmmaking is such a powerful way to change hearts and minds. Obviously, the power of storytelling and a narrative is really the way that you know many people can be convinced to make the change. Make the connection. Earthlings. But it is so fascinating, and I've had many guests who talk about being vegetarian from a very young age. And I always ask myself, I think, why why did I never make that connection? Because as a young child, I was very sensitive. I would cry at the drop of a hat. I was very gentle and I loved animals. And I had a pet rat and a chicken and a and you know, all these various animals. I loved animals, but then I hadn't made the connection. Maybe just because there was no influences around me in that sense to talk about it and question, because I think that's the biggest thing for young people or young kids is questioning. And when you question to be met with some kind of answer uh, that isn't just, you have to do this. I I unfortunately don't remember much of my childhood uh, for various reasons, which I'll get into today. But I think, you know, as kids, you know, we, we can be surrounded with that nurturing support that either says to us, great, you've made a great decision. This is your choice. You get to decide. Or we're surrounded by family often, which is, nope, you cannot do this. You must eat animals. If you don't eat animals or drink milk, you're going to have health problems. And then that is instilled within us from a very young age and that sort of carnistic fear system or belief system, which, you know, Dr. Melanie Joy often talks about is an invisible belief system because we often hear people say, don't shove your vegan views down my throat when actually as kids, we have the, the view of carnism kind of forced on us and we're taught that it's normal, natural and necessary and that we have to do it. But anyways, so tell us a little bit about how like your world changed and became vegan, because obviously for many people who care about the ethics and welfare of animals and even people as well, it really changes and shapes who you are as a person. But what are some of the sort of benefits and challenges that you faced when you made that switch? Yeah, it was a really big moment for me because even though, as I said, I went vegetarian when I was very young, I was a very passionate kid about being vegetarian. I, you know, wasn't deterred by the fact I lived in a town where basically everyone was up against me and, you know, on what you said, really looking back, very happy that my parents were honest with me because I feel like it's still so uncommon now for for that to happen to kids i get you know told that animals are happy so i'm i'm so glad that they let me make my own choices but as i got older i remained vegetarian but i probably became more quiet in my vegetarianism especially with the influences of you know being at high school and having different priorities and when i went vegan it absolutely transformed me in a way that i wasn't expecting i sort of really re evaluated what my entire life's purpose was and I felt this deep sense of injustice and I think a lot of people go through this when they go vegan this anger that other people didn't care as much as me that this was happening and that you know other people weren't listening to me and other people wouldn't get on board and I soon realized I was better off channeling that into something that had a purpose to actually change the lives of animals so I got involved in activism like many vegans do after they go vegan and uh, took on leadership roles with a range of different groups here in Australia that were lobbying on uh, a range of different issues animals in racing industries animals in food systems and because of that my uh, groups around me really transformed as well you know my friendship groups changed the people that I worked with changed and at the time, it was quite challenging for me. I think going vegan can be an isolating experience and especially living where I was, it definitely was because even in that short time, it was 12 years ago now, I feel like the movement has grown in such a rapid way and, and I've been really privileged to see that happen. But it absolutely transformed my world and the best part for me though is that all those steps that I took and all those causes I got involved in, it led me to what I'm doing now, which is, you know, such a privilege. So I, you know, have no regrets about the complete upturning of my life as I knew it when I went vegan. 
It's amazing. And, you know, often we talk about veganism as being a form of direct action because we're, we're taking action, aren't we, every single day by choosing to withdraw our support for animal agriculture, which, as we all know, is the leading driver of the one of the leading drivers of the climate crisis, as well as, you know, the nature crisis is, as a, something we're all seeing and witnessing with our very eyes. But it's, uh, it's such a powerful movement and it's, you know, it is a social justice movement because obviously the rights of animals and the welfare and well-being of animals are constantly being questioned by vegans every single day where we're questioning the status quo and being involved in politics is part of that isn't it it's about questioning the status quo am i happy with how things are right now am i happy with the way our government is running our country with the way you know politicians are building our, our world and running our world but just staying on on veganism for a second kind of the stigmas and stereotypes what are some of the challenges around that did you face? Uh, you know, did you experience any, because you mentioned being in a town where everyone was against you. So how did you deal with that? How did you deal with the sort of, you know, the challenge of that? Because it must have really been quite difficult. Yeah, as I said, it was very isolating. And I actually worked at the one pub in the town behind the bar. And the people that frequented that pub were often the people that worked in the town who were working in the industry that I had very publicly announced that I was philosophically opposed to and I was doing a lot of activism and I was in the media and, you know, my face was in a lot of places opposing what they do. I did struggle in the beginning with the criticism, with the ridicule and, you know, I think particularly for young women, I was 18, there's a a sexism element to it as well because it's sort of male-dominated industries and then young women who are challenging them they tend to go towards, you know, criticizing you for your gender or how you look. And I struggled with it at first, absolutely. And then I realized that if they weren't threatened by what I was doing and if they weren't concerned and if they were ignoring me as well, that would probably bother me more, even though I knew what they were doing is wrong. I sort of realized that if we are agitating the industry and the people in it, that means we're being effective. So I took the treatment that I was receiving and sort of turned it into motivation to keep on going because I thought if I'm if I'm getting to them, they know that they're being challenged. They know that they probably need to change. Uh, they might, you know, want to consider why why people are feeling this way. I, I still apply that in my in my life now when I receive criticism for the, for the work that I'm now doing. So, but it, it definitely is, you know. Um, the stereotypes sort of around the sort of people that would go vegan like I was an 18 year old university student covered in tattoos you know people think you're just this like a hippie that wants attention and I think a lot of people thought it was a phase and I've obviously proven them that it absolutely was not a phase amazing I love that as as the famous uh, Oscar Wilde said the only one thing in life worse than being talked about is not being talked about (laughs) which you know is true like when people are throwing insults at us and kind of throwing all that attention on us we can use it as an opportunity and I think when we have a sense of purpose and we have a sense of direction in our lives as a person no matter what people say if we feel that we're on the right track and we're heading in the right direction we can use these comments as fuel for our work but I'm interested just to to touch on and kind of focus in on culture and the kind of toxic masculinity that goes along with the idea that men have to eat meat to be manly. And I, I know from many of my friends uh, who live in your country that it's very strong in the culture. The culture of kind of masculinity and meat eating is deeply entwined within uh, within the culture. Now, how does that play out in the culture every day? And are we seeing a shift and a change? Because obviously, traditionally, the whole idea of masculinity and meat are so deeply embedded. But is there are threads of this sort of sexist narrative that run through it that to be female, to not eat meat is a sense is a sort of source of weakness. And that to be male, to be masculine is to eat meat is to kill things. What's your thoughts on the sort of like the polarity of that, which is clearly obviously absolute BS. But it yeah. seems to be still today a very powerful narrative that runs through through many you know Western cultures. One and only Arnold Schwarzenegger. I ate a lot of meat. They showed us commercials. Steak. That's what a man eats. Selling that idea that real men eat meat. Serious man food. But you got to understand that's marketing. That's not based on reality. I've been teaching fighting techniques to government agencies for more than 15 years. Then I got injured. 
unable to teach for at least six months, I spent more than a thousand hours studying science on recovery and nutrition and stumbled across a study about the Roman gladiators. The gladiators were predominantly vegetarian. How could the original professional fighters be so powerful? eating only plants. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Meat eating and masculinity go hand in hand in Australia. And I certainly noticed that at the time that I went vegan. And there's this real, um, I think, notion that caring is a sign of weakness. And it's women who go vegan because women are hysterical and we can't accept what happens to animals, but it's okay what happens to them. And I barely knew any vegan men when I went vegan and that has been a rapid shift in the time that I have and I think there's been a a few elements to it I think that uh, we spoke about earlier about um, storytelling and you know documentaries being a powerful tool for change I think in Australia I don't care why anyone goes vegan I'm vegan because I care about animals but there was there was a real trend uh, over here from sports stars when some um, health and evidence-based documentaries came out about plant-based eating and how good it is for performance. And we had some AFL players, our, our footy over here, uh, go vegan and come out as vegan. And then we had some uh, a cricketer become like a very prominent vegan activist. And it was sort of like the uh, cultural narrative was starting to change from like you know, you have to eat meat to be manly and strong and, um, you know, to meet the standards of masculinity here to actually maybe it's good for your health. And, you know, this sports person that I really idolise does it and, you know, they're playing better than ever before. And I think that it's sort of definitely been these people that that have come out in the public eye that were probably looked up to that's played a big part and I think that's happened sort of around the world with you know prominent people going vegan or plant-based when I made the switch to a plant-based diet I qualified for my third Olympic team I broke two American records I was like man I should have done this a long while ago when I went plant-based I wasn't sure if I was going to survive and I actually became like a machine. One of the biggest misconceptions in sports nutrition is that we have to have animal protein to perform at a high level. That's just not true. Sometimes you have to do things that you know your competitors aren't doing. Today's blood and yesterday's blood. I think this is going to wake a lot of people up. I was recovering better, not getting as sore. This was our best season in the last 15 years, and we had 14 guys on plant-based diets. We all want to feel great, have more energy. Cholesterol was 276. Today, 169. Whoa, now you're talking. Most guys my age can keep up with the grandchildren. My grandchildren can't keep up with me. It's not one set of dietary guidelines for improving your performance as an athlete. Another one for reversing heart disease, reversing diabetes. It's the same for all of them. Someone asked me, how could you get as strong as an ox without eating any meat? And my answer was, have you ever seen an ox eating meat? It still does very much exist here. And we have some, the meat and livestock industry definitely targets men. I think they've given up on the women. We have some ads about, you know, get some pork on your fork. How's the family, Jim? How's the family, Jim? All good, love. Just here for Nancy's checkup. Oh, good. Everything right? Yep, but the doctor says we should pork more often. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Good, huh? Pork fillets with less than half the fat of beef fillets and a valuable source of iron. Bit of pork, love. Oh, I love it. Shouldn't you get some pork on your fork? And we have a very racist public holiday here every year called um, Australia Day, and they are constantly in recent years targeting men. And, you know, it's always blokes having a barbecue and, you know, blokes doing things. So the industry, I think, can see that they are starting to lose what was traditionally probably their stronghold and uh, pushing back against it, which I think, again, is a sign that the movement is, you know, has a pretty 
pretty good stronghold. Your role models already see, for me, are an essential element to community and movement building. I think that people need someone or something to look up to. Human beings are tribal creatures by our nature. And I think that leadership is such a, an important part of uh, a movement, but also it's just social change generally. But that kind of leads me nicely onto my next question. You have a background in law and unionism and also being involved in you know, po- politics. There's a real lack of leadership in the world of politics. You know, talk me through like how you got involved in this world, because it's a pretty scary world to get involved in, especially a very male dominated world, you know, leaning into some of the things that we talked about with how men treat women and and how men sort of place themselves in society. But, you know, go back to the beginning as how that all started, because it's a it's a pretty amazing thing. Yeah, my veganism is very much intersectional. And as you mentioned, I, you know, was involved in the union movement and a bunch of other cause based campaigns uh, that weren't just animal related. And I was still very much involved in, in animal rights campaigning. And I just had this moment where I was like, every single thing that I'm asking for requires the law to be changed. And that requires politicians to do it. And maybe instead of trying to convince people who are politicians to do the thing we want them to do, we need to get our movement elected and we need to get in there ourselves um, that already hold these values rather than trying to convince other people about why they are important. And I was at a protest outside of a, a race course. Horse racing is a massive industry here it probably isn't in some of the countries that listeners are in but in Australia horse racing is huge we get a public holiday or a bank holiday for some of the races every year and I was at a protest and someone came up to me and said we're starting a political party for animals do you want to join and I was like that sounds great so I joined and that was about 10 years ago now and they were trying to get to 50 members and now uh, just in the state alone that I live in we have thousands of members But we thought it was a really, really long way away till we actually got someone into parliament. And we finally did in 2018. And uh, his name was Andy Medic, and I worked for him for four years. And um, leaning into what you said before, towards the end of his term and the election, I was getting encouraged to run as a candidate. And it terrified me, not because I didn't think I was capable. Uh, I've got a lot, like, I'm admitted as a lawyer. I understand politics. It's a space that I've operated in for some time. I was already working in in the field. But being a politician myself absolutely terrified me. The reason was not because I didn't think I was capable, competent or qualified. It was because I was absolutely petrified about how I was going to be treated because I had seen the very stark difference over my four years working as a staffer to a politician, just how men are treated compared to women. Most women in politics, they're, they're older than me. I was going to be running quite young and there's this ageism element as well that you have to have this certain amount of life experience to earn your right to be there. And so it absolutely terrified me, but somehow I got convinced and then I did get elected, which was very, very exciting and it is the greatest honour of my life. But I've been very open about the fact that it hasn't been an easy journey for me being in public life. It's actually been pretty bloody awful. And don't get me wrong, I have lots of wonderful, wonderful people who support me. But I also have agitated a base of people who are mostly, you know, male dominated industries. We're talking shooters, farmers, racing industries. And they look at someone like me and think, how on earth could that little girl be taking us on and who does she think she is they've come after me in a way that was probably worse than I expected and going back to what I said before is that I'd actually worked four years for an animal justice party MP who definitely got criticism but because he was a middle-aged bloke the criticism that I got is so much different to what he got and there's this real perverse sexism misogyny mistreatment of women in public life where it's almost as if they feel that they own you and they can say whatever they want to you and that you are without feeling or you know incapable of being offended incapable of feeling fear by their words that that has continued to go on I I I do call it out and it'll simmer down a little bit but then I'll do something that annoys them and they'll start up again it's remarkable. I I cannot understand 
how and why well i can understand i i know why men do this it's 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 all about the ego isn't it it's that sense of self-importance that has been bred into our society into men in our society that places them above women and has done for thousands of years and this is why we are in a world where intersectionality and conversations around social justice are so important because we want to upset and disrupt the balance that has that has placed men above or everyone else. And, you know, they don't like it. The patriarchal system that exists in our world today is is aggressive and it's confrontational and it's egotistical and it's and it's built itself a monolith that props up all the industries that are absolutely desecrating our world. Now, you know, I'm not si- sitting here being a what's it called? A misandrist, a man hater. I'm absolutely not. There are many incredible men in the world doing remarkable things, standing up against a lot of this injustice. But when I sometimes speak to friends and say, you know, we have a problem with our society and the patriarchal nature of our society, I've been shocked at some of my friends that say, what do you mean patriarchy? Women have equality. Women are treated the same as men. And I say, maybe under the eyes of the law, but when you scratch beneath the surface of our society, every aspect of it, there is a sexist narrative that runs in it, whether it's our language, whether it's how women are treated in politics, whether it's how women are treated in the boardroom. Many of my friends who are CEOs business who are women have many times spoken of how they've gone to an investor meeting, opened the door, and it's a room full of men. And there's been a man going, honey, I think you've got the wrong room. Or, you know, in some kind of patronizing tone to suggest just because you're a woman, you're not capable. And it, it absolutely boils my piss, as we say in the UK. <laughs> just, <laughs> you know, women are just as capable and resilient and knowledgeable and and as men are in in every single way and there's this sort of narrative that i guess has run for centuries that you know women are delicate and as you said as, as hysterical and it's often used against women you know we've had conversations um here at pbn about like language and how we talk about people we have to be very cautious and mindful of how we refer to people you know things like crazy or hysterical you know words like that have been often used as weapons against women for for centuries going back 100 plus years or more you know when the when the bicycle was first created did you know that men banned women from riding bicycles because they were afraid that it would damage their delicate brains <laughs> <laughs> i didn't know that but i'm also not one bit surprised there's this been whole idea of wrapping women up in cotton wool and and protecting them and of course you know there's a whole idea of like men being the protectors and women being the the carers and the caregivers but i think that men can also be caregivers and, and carers you know and women can also be protectors and i yeah. think our whole society needs to shift its views of, of men and women don't you think yeah absolutely and i think that idea about women being soft and sensitive we're not all soft and sensitive, but it's often used, as you said, as a weapon against us about why we shouldn't be able to do certain things like being politics. But there's actually plenty of research to show that that's exactly why we should be there because politics requires people who can make compassionate decisions, who can consider the lives of others, who want to create a kinder world. You shouldn't have to be hardened and devoid of emotion to earn a place in our parliaments. Uh, In fact, it's a very, very good thing if you are sensitive to issues because it means you're going to make decisions that aren't for the betterment of yourself. It's for the betterment of everyone. And I really hate this idea that if women are sensitive or caring, that that means they're not cut out to do this work because it often means they're much better equipped to do it than the blokes. There's a there's a wonderful book called The Power by Naomi Hilderman. I think I read it. Is. Yeah, a fantastic a sci-fi slash dystopian future where women have the power to release electricity from their hands. There's a, a, an amazing um, Amazon Prime TV show now of the book, which is absolutely phenomenal. But it really asks the question: If women were given the power this kind of metaphorical power, would the world be any different? Would the world change if if the gender balance completely shifted and women had all the power, they contained all the power? And that's the big question. Like, is our issue with the differences between the sexes all about just biology? Or is it just culture? Is it the sort of sense of like ownership that men have taken over the world 
and uh, claimed it for themselves and sort of placed women underneath them? Or is it just because of circumstance, you know, or is it actually something that was wrapped up in a biology? Obviously, I'm not a a behavioral psychologist here, so I'm not going to get too deep into the differences between the sexes. Some people have said to me, oh, well, you know, look at non-human animals, look at the males and the females. The males are very dominant. They always dominate over the females. But then I say, well, you know, humans have a sense of morality. We, we have that sort of like internal sense. So we have the ability to grow different. We're different to non-human animals because they act from a place of instinct, but we have the ability to have uh, introspection and think about our actions and, and be aware of it. And to me, that is what a human of the 21st century is about, is a sense of social justice and a sense of justice in our lives, taking ethics very seriously and being cognizant and aware of everything around us rather than being like a bulldozer, going through life, just consuming mindlessly and taking from our world, killing animals and destroying the planet and thinking, well, you know, tomorrow's another day and I'll do and eat and be whoever I want. But on on politics, obviously, you know, politics is, is a frustrating space to be within because, you know, there's so much change that needs to happen, but it seems to move at a, a pace that is there's not a word to describe it. It's so slow. But like, uh, explain to me a little bit about like the process of bringing change in a society and the laws and stuff and how it feels to be a part of that system. And does it feel frustrating? Do you feel like, you know, that change is possible? Or do you really think that the whole political system needs a total overhaul? Yeah, look, honestly, I think politics is decades behind public sentiment. Most of the time, that's something I've absolutely learned. We're really lucky in Australia, unlike other countries where we don't operate on a two-party system here. It, we do have two major parties, but minor parties that have values that are, you know, perhaps more, you know, specific are able to get elected to our parliaments and it does allow the opportunity to bring about great change. And a little while ago, I probably would have said I wasn't feeling optimistic about, you know, the future and the rate that um, and the pace that politics goes at but just the other day I was talking to my staff about I've only been in for nine months and we're talking about everything we've been able to get done and you know we've secured whole of life tracking for every single greyhound in the Victorian racing industry. Thank you President, I give notice on the next day of meeting I will move that this house notes that one Victoria is second in the country for on-track greyhound deaths in 2023. Two, 1,273 greyhounds have been injured on Victorian racetracks in 2023. Three, there have been 292 major greyhound injuries on Victorian racetracks in 2023, representing a 36% increase from this time last year. Four, there have been 202 serious greyhound injuries on Victorian racetracks in 2023, representing a 46% increase from this time last year. Five, Victoria leads the country in the number of serious on-track greyhound injuries in 2023. Six, as a result of these injuries, there has been significantly more off-track deaths in 2023 and calls on the government to acknowledge that, despite their their investment in safety improvements, dogs continue to die. We've got a parliamentary inquiry into the use of CO2 systems uh, for gassing of pigs and sow stalls and forms of confinement, which which I get to chair, which is great. Um, We've got a parliamentary committee to recommend a ban on recreational duck shooting in Victoria. We've secured $15 million in funding for a range of different animal protection initiatives. It's actually pretty cool, but the other thing that I, you know, have had to learn is everything I've just listed off then, I didn't end greyhound racing. I haven't ended the use of of pigs in food systems. And you have to accept pragmatism and um, I guess what some vegans would call a welfareist perspective working in politics. And I will never, ever lose my values and the fact that I think animals should not be used in the ways that they do. But I very much take the perspective of if I can improve their lives as long as these industries exist while still fundamentally working to dismantle them altogether, I will do it. But I know that a lot of people are frustrated by the idea of doing that. And it is frustrating going to work every day and, you know, being the person who sticks out, first of all, and, you know, back to the gender conversation, feeling like I have to work, you know, twice as hard and achieve twice as much to prove my worth and my value in there. 
and then being surrounded by people who don't understand me and disagree with what I have to say, it is it is a frustrating experience. But I often think when I'm sort of feeling a bit up against it and like it's a long slog that if I wasn't there doing what I'm doing and if I'm feeling frustrated by what people are saying to me, it's it's not about me. And I think that if, you know, animals could accept the things that I am able to achieve to them or achieve for them or nothing, they'd probably pick the things that I've been able to get done. But it absolutely is an incredibly slow pace in in which things move. I always like to tell people I don't think politics is a be all and end all and I don't think it is a solution to how we get animal liberation. We talk about a pyramid in our office and politics is sort of up here at the tip of the pyramid because Underneath it, there's education, there's campaigning, there's activism, there's lobbying, there's litigation, and it's all different forms of um, work that animal activists are doing. And I get to be the person that can deliver that message of what they're doing to the government to put the pressure on, to hold them to account in Parliament, to hold back my vote if they need it, if they won't do something. But I think that this pyramid, every single part of it, plays a really important role. And by all working together, that is how we achieve animal liberation and ultimately create a kinder world for animals. Just going back to the subject of gender, you pulled a stunt, if we could say that, <laughs> yes. or you, you you conducted a stunt, yes. which was pretty amazing. You wore a dress for some of the gendered online abuse that you received. Uh, you had it uh, printed or painted onto the dress. I'm here today on International Women's Day wearing just a selection of some of the online gendered violence that I've received since getting elected in December. It says brain dead, bimbo, trash, skank, scrag, your voters deserve to know you're a whore. Australia is actually one of the most misogynistic countries in the Western world. Problem is, it's not just misogyny in politics, we receive it on a Uh, probably a bigger level because we're in public life but it's changing the attitudes of men across the whole country because you know online abuse is rife for us as female MPs but it's rife, rife for women everywhere and the answer is that men need to do better. Tell me more about the dress itself and and how bad is it when it comes to gender harassment for women online? So uh, on International Women's Day, I had my friend design me a dress and we got her to cover it in just a handful of the things that have been said to me since I got elected. It was quite a sad exercise because we had so many options to choose from. I don't know if I can say any of them on the show, cut it out if you need to, but there was like slut, whore, tatted up trash bag. One of them said, nice pair of tits though, skank. Someone called me the gateway to hell. And that was the lower level stuff because I felt like I couldn't wear the really, really offensive stuff to work. And I went to work on International Women's Day and I spoke about the fact that online gendered abuse is, I think, the biggest barrier holding back women and gender diverse people from entering public life. As you said before, we might have equality under the law but we don't have equality in terms of treatment. We don't have equality in terms of public perception. We don't have equality in terms of the standards that we accept in treatment of people in public life. There's been plenty of research done in Australia and around the world that shows women that are capable and qualified and want to go in politics, the reason they don't want to is because of the misogyny. And that's not just misogyny within the four walls of the parliament building it's the misogyny that comes in the community and it's especially the misogyny that comes online the online space is been the greatest threat to me and it's the hardest one to address because often the people are anonymous they're nameless they're faceless but they'll send you some pretty awful things and in the nine months I've been in parliament I've had to report rape threats I've had to report death threats I've had shooters Photoshop my face onto someone being shot and send it to me. So it's not just this injustice of feeling like you're, you know, receiving this awful sexist commentary. It's that they're literally threatening you and um, they wouldn't do it to a man. I know they wouldn't do it to a man because I used to work for a male MP and they disagreed with him but didn't get this treatment. And mine is, I think, probably worsened by the fact that I'm very open about the fact that I used to be a stripper and they think that that's something that I should be ashamed of when I'm absolutely not. I think it's an important part of my story and shows that 
um, people from all walks of life can go into politics, but they really just try and, you know, degrade me and devalue me. And ultimately, they're doing it because they want to silence me. And I did that dress to show them that I'm never going to do that. In fact, I'm going to take their words that they try and weaponize against me and I'm going to weaponize them against them instead. Mm, amazing, incredible work on that, Georgie. Sexism and sort of misogyny seems like such a big problem. Uh, as you say, it's everywhere. It's pervasive. It's also, you know, hidden in plain sight. It's in our language. It's in our culture. Have you got any theories or views on like how we can change ourselves as a, as a society? Because just like eating animals, we've done it for thousands of years. And, you know, sexism and misogyny and a patriarchal system has dominated human society for, for thousands of years as well. But things can change and things are, we are capable of changing as people. But what are some of your thoughts on how we address this behavior and how we, I don't want to say breed it out of humanity because it sounds a bit insidious, but, you know, it does need to change. We can't have a happy, healthy, free society when we treat gender, uh, you know, people who are the opposite gender or gender diverse people in this way. And obviously that bleeds into, I have theories around homophobia and transphobia because, you know, sexism and transphobia and homophobia are deeply entwined. And we'll, we'll touch on that in a bit. But what are your thoughts on like how we address this type of stuff? Because it's all very well, like having to deal with it and bat it off each day and try and be as strong as possible, but it does need to be addressed and dealt with. Mm, yeah, absolutely. We have a saying here, you might say it over there, it's the standard you walk by is the standard you accept. And like I said, I'm calling out the treatment of me, but why aren't other politicians? And I don't think we overcome this until we start calling people out, especially calling people out that we feel uncomfortable calling people out. Sexism and misogyny breeds within spaces where people feel comfortable saying the things that they do, you know, without fear of any sort of criticism or being called out for their words. And that's definitely the case here in Australia. Sexism is so, you know, deeply entwined into male dominated spaces like football clubs and sporting groups and politics that, you know, has traditionally been a workspace for men. And we're not good at telling people the things that they say and do are not okay because it makes us uncomfortable to do so. We might quite like them. But violence against women operates on, you know, it's probably another pyramid or another spectrum. It's, you know, starts with awful comments online, but then it ends with women, you know, being killed because we have this ongoing, I guess, escalation because people aren't told the things that they're saying and doing isn't okay. I think here we've been, you know, our governments have tried really, really hard to overcome this because we have, you know, one woman die a week. And people might people might think it's extreme of me to compare nasty words online to women being killed, but it's very much related because it's fundamentally disrespect towards women that continues to escalate and continues to breed. And it's also about talking to young boys and, you know, letting uh, young people know the right way to talk to their friends about women and how to have respectful relationships. I think also for for men as well, and this is something that's definitely gone on in political spaces, is in order to create a society where women are equal, often men have to give things up and that can be quite confronting for them. So in, in politics, a number of political parties have brought in gender quotas to try and balance the amount of women that we have in parliaments because, frankly, there wasn't enough women getting elected. And people might say, well, if women want to get elected, they should put themselves forward, but it's, you know, they're less likely to get pre-selected. There's this, you know, misogyny that comes from the voter base about they want to vote for a man, they don't want to vote for a woman. So we've done a lot of work to elevate women into public life and into politics. And I found that men are often very supportive of that until it affects them and, you know, until they might have to get, give something up, until they might um, have to pass on an opportunity in order for a woman to have it. And it's something that I think that men need to realise that their allyship sometimes might come at a personal cost, but it's for the greater good. 
Yeah, absolutely. And the, and the statistics are sobering. While, while you were speaking there, I was looking up the domestic violence uh, statistics in Australia. And one in three women, that's 31% of the country, experiences physical or sexual violence perpetrated by a man they know. And one in four women, 23% has experienced sexual violence by a current or former partner since the age of 15, which is not just about words and kind of, you know, social commentary or locker room talk. There are a section of society where men feel they have a right to women and their bodies. And obviously, this is a huge problem as well, and it needs to be addressed. And I absolutely concur in, in the idea and notion that young boys need role models, better role models, because I think you know, human beings, we're, when we're children, we're like sponges. We're absorbing our culture around us as we grow. And if we're seeing a culture of sexism around us from a young age, we're going to replicate that. Well, not all of us, but we're going, many are going to replicate that and mirror that. Goes back to what I said earlier about a happy, healthy. Healthy society needs positive role models. It needs good men and women who will stand up and challenge the status quo and not be those, as they say in Japan, there's the saying, the nail that sticks up must be hammered down. Well, you know, if you want a happy society, those nails all need to stick up and we all need to challenge the status quo because we're never going to see change in our world if we all sit in silence. Obviously, you know, it's difficult in times and in parts of the world where if you do stick your head up, you might have your head chopped off literally. So, you know, it, it's not as easy for everyone everywhere in the world. But I think where we have a safety and opportunity to speak our minds in safety, one one should do it. And uh, But the world is changing, just, you know, painfully slow, but it is changing. So moving on from that uh, rather heavy subject. Yeah, yeah, let's let's move let's move forward to to sort of the future and and, and talk about sort of the sort of the change and, and work that you're doing. I'd love to hear more about like what's working within your in your work, like what are some of the campaigns you, and go into that a bit more about how you are seeing change and some of the things that you're working for for animals and how your sort of sense of social justice and the work that you do really feeds into this passion to see to see animals and and to see a change in their well-being and uh, and their freedom being on my own as a sole animal justice party MP in parliament really requires you to be strategic and focused on on what you want to achieve we obviously have an enormous amount of cruelty to animals in uh, the state I'm I'm in the the whole country the whole world and the reality is you can't take it all on in a major way so we have a number of major campaigns that we're working on with the idea of once we wrap one of them up, we pick another one up, but we'll always be responsive to what's going on in the animal protection community. If an investigation comes out, um, if there's an NGO who's you know releasing footage, we'll absolutely get involved. We'll work with them from the political perspective and do what we can. But some of the big things we've been working on uh, since I got elected is ending recreational duck shooting in Victoria. So I think duck shooting uh, differs in size in different parts of the world, but I have a lot of American duck shooters commenting on my social media talking about duck shooting over there. The duck shot in Victoria are actually a native species, so they're wildlife, and they're protected under the Wildlife Act all year round with severe penalties if you harm them, but then for a couple months of the year, the government essentially unprotects them and and allows a very small section of society to have an open season on them, which you know is absolutely devastating, not just because it kills them, but the wounding rate is incredibly high, which leads them to suffer and slowly die. We were able to form a parliamentary committee having an inquiry into it, which only a few weeks ago came back and recommended a ban on duck shooting to the government. And we're very, very hopeful that they will um, implement that because most other states of Australia have already banned duck shooting decades ago. Some of them did it before I was born, which I think goes to show how far behind we are on the issue. The other big one for us is greyhound racing. I've got a jump front that says ban greyhound racing. Again, much smaller industry in other parts of the world and almost non-existent in the United States, but still a a decent-sized industry here in Australia. And um, with it comes a significant amount of animal cruelty We've had numerous live baiting scandals where small animals are put on laws, mechanical laws, and flung around racetracks to be used for bait. We have a dog dying on the track almost every fortnight. We've had, um, you know, mass mass graves uncovered. And then there's the obvious cruelty that goes on just by the very fact that comes with animals being used in racing. It's the living conditions, it's the housing conditions, it's the lack of socialisation, and it's the fact that the 
their lives and their wants and their needs aren't prioritised, it's gambling profits and that fundamentally means that the animal loses. So we're chipping really hard on the greyhound racing industry and for that they fucking hate me and they're coming after me in in quite a big way um, which again makes me feel like we might be achieving something and the other major thing we're working on is kangaroos so um, people love kangaroos they're amazing animals iconic to Australia every time I've gone overseas and someone hears my accent the first thing they talk to me about is kangaroos they're treated awfully in Australia Uh, a lot of people don't realize we have a what's called a commercial kangaroo industry and it means that at night time shooters go out and and shoot them um and you know if they have a joey in their pouch or at foot um they'll bludgeon them in the night and they're used for pet food and uh, skins so turned into leather and there's been a global campaign to end the use of kangaroo skins by a number of sports brands um nike and puma have already pulled out and now we're working on adidas So we're doing a lot of work trying to end the commercial kangaroo industry in Victoria, the state I live in. We have a quota of over 200,000 kangaroos that can be shot in the the state I'm in alone every single year. And we're very much running the risk of potentially shooting them to extinction, which would be absolutely disastrous. Um, They're deemed a pest or a nuisance by many here, which is absolutely not the fact they were here before us. They're Indigenous animals and they deserve the right to live. So there are some of the big things that we're working on along with some farmed animal campaigns. I spoke about pig gassing before. We've had some horrific footage come out in Australia recently of pigs being gassed as a form of stunning. We're trying to end that. And the use of sow stalls, battery cages, which have been banned in some parts of the world like a long, long time ago. We still use battery cages for hens here. And the government's just said, They'll end them in 2036, which is way too wow. far away. So we're trying to bring it forward. It's uh, it's shocking. I, I was doing a voiceover for animal equality uh, earlier yesterday, and um, just thinking about you know how these animals are kept in these environments where they don't get to live out their natural tendencies. You know, these cows in the UK are more and more cow um, farmers are you know farming animals in these kind of awful environments. They don't really get to live out their natural behaviour. And, and that's a, a, such a tragedy. But we are up against these monstrous factory farmed organizations. And I think as Leah Garcia said in a podcast previous, welfareism might not be the ideal for a lot of vegans. And a lot of vegans feel that it's an injustice and it absolutely is. But she said to me, you know, imagine someone you really cared about was in prison and you could not get them out of prison, but you had the power to improve their lives in prison for the time that they are there. Um, wouldn't you want to do that? And and I absolutely agree. Like we we don't have the power to end these factory farms now, but we can have the power to f- to push government, to push organisations to get rid of cages. And yes, I know a bigger cage is still a cage, but you know suffering is ultimately something that we're fighting against. We're trying to end the suffering of these animals, and I think it's vital that we help people realise that we're we're all working as hard as we can, as much as we can, as quickly as we can. There needs to be a lot of vegans feel there's a sense of urgency because of the volume of suffering. You know, there's a sort of tsunami of suffering, and that's what overwhelms people, I think. And when we see animals in these cages, in these battery cages, or in these CAFOs or these factory farms, there's a lot of anger. Uh, and you can see why people are storming restaurants, screaming meat is murder, and throwing blood on politicians and losing their shit with people because they feel so passionate about this injustice. But the monster of factory farming and the monster of the animal ag is so big and so powerful and it has so much money that we have to work with the system to be able to dismantle it rather than you know attacking it from the outside. And I often talk about animal ag as this sort of giant monolith. It's propped up by these industries that give it its power. And activism needs to be very strategic in the way that it dismantles it. We can't stand on the outside of the monolith throwing rocks at the top of it, hoping that we're going to take it down. Yes, you can go and protest. Of course, you have the right to do that. Yes, you can go into restaurants with wealthy elites and scream meters murder at them, but you really are only throwing rocks, chipping small bits off the monolith. We need to get inside the machine and take it out from the inside. We have that's what exactly what you're doing. You're inside the monolith yeah. as a politician operating within the system working to dismantle it. And that's what we need more of. And that's where strategy comes in. That's why I think it's so essential that people who care about this issue need to learn the skills and the tricks of whether it's campaigning, whether it's politics, whether it's law. We need more vegan lawyers, more vegan politicians. 
with that answer, and excuse the waffle, everyone, <laughs> with that answer is how do we get more people involved in politics from a vegan and ethical perspective? Because you said, as you said, it's scary and it's threatening, but we need more people doing what you're doing. How do we inspire them to do that, Georgie? Yeah, I have been very surprised by the amount of people, including vegans, when they find out what I do, they say, that's great, but I'm not political. And I always say to them, you might not care about politics, but politics cares about you. And it's making decisions that affect your life and the things you care about every single day, whether you're in for the ride or not. And I think it's making people or compelling people to understand the power that comes within political systems to bring about the changes that we want to see. I think a lot of people feel tired and defeated and fed up with politics. They've lost faith. But the reality is politics continues on and our parliaments continue on no matter how they're feeling. And if we don't have the right people in there influencing that and trying to change that and trying to reverse bad decisions, we're going to end up in a worse place than we we already are. So I think as well, there's this, on top of that, there's this idea that um, politics and parliament is this elitist, inaccessible structure that isn't for ordinary people. And I fully understand why people feel that way. And I think there's many politicians who are secretive about what goes on in parliament, which is why I've tried to work so hard to bring transparency and openness and accountability and normality to politics because until people feel they can relate to politicians and see themselves in a, in politicians they're never going to think it's a place for them and so I think a lot of people feel deterred by politics because they just don't see anything about themselves in it and uh, we don't change that until we change the faces that exist within there and I always like to remind people that politics is a place for absolutely everyone I often talk about the fact that I'm a lawyer and I'm a former union official and, you know, I've got a politics degree even. I sort of tick all the boxes if there was a rule book for becoming a politician. But I I don't like to highlight my qualifications because my core belief is that you don't need a certain amount of education, a certain amount of life experience, a certain amount of work experience to get involved in politics. All you need to do is to have a value set and to care and to be determined enough to try and get there because we need a diversity of voices and a diversity of backgrounds in our parliaments and our political systems because that's how we truly get them to represent society. So anyone who wants to get involved, it sounds very simple. It's My advice always is to just do it join a political party, get involved with the office of your local uh, MP or politician if you like the work that they do. But if you want to get there yourself, there's absolutely no reason why you can't and I'm living proof of that. And we, I, I reeled off some of the things we've been able to achieve before but I actually said to my staff when I got elected, my term goes for four years and I said, if I don't achieve anything over the next four years, I just at the very least hope that young women in particular look at me and think maybe I can do that thing that I really want to do as more and more people come in that are different like myself will have a a much more diverse parliament and I think a much more kinder society as a result of it. Mm, Amazing that's all we've got time for but thank you so much for joining us on the PBM podcast. Thank you very much for having me on. It was great. Before I let you go, obviously, I always like to ask my guests this one final question. If you were stuck on a desert island and it was just you and a pig, uh, <laughs> you know what's coming next. If I could give you one vegan dish, one music album and one book, what would you take with you? Oh, okay. That is a great question. Uh, one vegan dish. I feel like if I was stuck on a desert island, I'd want a comfort food and my comfort food is normally mac and cheese. So I'd pick mac and cheese. I'd pick 1989 by Taylor Swift because I feel like it always puts me in a good mood. And again, because I would be feeling in a little bit of a crisis.
And one book, I have to give a shout out to one of my staff who's, I think she's actually been on the podcast and I'm very proud she works for me. My staff member, Emma Harkinson, has a book, How Veganism Can Save Us. And it's one of my favorite books because it's like a ready reckoner for anyone who wants to go vegan or wants to understand veganism from all the different angles we can come at, whether it be, you know, animals, people or the planet. Uh, It's such an easy and beautiful read. So I feel like I would take that with me. Amazing. Good choices there. Ms. Georgie Purcell, thank you so much for joining us on the PBM podcast. Thank you. Thanks for joining us, everyone. I've been your host, Robbie Lockie, and this is the PBN Podcast. We'll be back next week with more food, fashion, animals, veganism, and everything in between.